Welcome listeners. You're listening to the Kuiper Collective Podcast, a podcast of faculty, alumni, and friends of Kuiper College. This is episode five of our book discussion series this summer. I'll be your host again, Jeff Fisher, academic dean and a professor of theology at Kuiper College. This week, uh, as we continue our way through the new book, From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education and Public Ministry, we'll be talking about the phrase Black Lives Matter and the organization Black Lives Matter. If you listen to our previous episodes discussing this book, you'll know that we found it to be very relevant to our current culture, our callings as Christians, and particularly to our vocations in Christian higher education. And we've only got two more chapters before we get to the one written by our own professor, Dr. Rochelle White. Um, so I'm eager for that one. This week's chapter is entitled Religious Education in Response to Black Lives Matter, A Case for Critical Pedagogy. This chapter is authored by Joseph V. Crockett, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Editorial Director of Friendship Press Incorporated in Chester Heights, Pennsylvania. Friendship Press is the publisher that's working with the National Council of Churches and the Society for Biblical Literature to update the NRSV translation of the Bible. Uh, Joseph Crockett is an elder in the United Methodist Church, and he's been working in publishing since the mid-1980s. He's worked as a teacher, a researcher, author, administrator in a variety of church and community settings. And he has a chapter here on engaging with uh, Black Lives Matter. So before we start our conversation on this chapter, I'd like to invite our other participants to introduce themselves. Rochelle White, Professor of Youth Ministry, Director of Ministry Leadership Internships. Uh, Brian Telzero, Professor of Youth Ministry and the uh, Director of the Ministry Leadership Program. Lisa Hogelbaum, Professor of Intercultural and Biblical Studies. Parler, Professor of Theological Studies. Michelle Norquist, Director of Library Services. Sarah Beam, Registrar at Kuiper College. All right, thanks. It's good. It's very good to be with you all again and having these conversations. I at least have, have found it very fruitful um, to engage with this book more deeply by interacting and engaging with you all throughout the summer. So I'm grateful again for your willingness to participate and to, to have these conversations. Now this chapter centers on Black Lives Matter uh, and interacting with the phrase, the history, the movement, the ideals, the principles, the actions, the intentions, the outcomes from a critical perspective, but not, not critical in the sense of, of negative, uh, but critical in the sense of deeply thoughtful. So Crockett here provides us with a, an articulated example of how to think about, examine, support, and perhaps even supplement what's happening in the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, he outlines uh, a pedagogical lens, to use his words, help explore the activities and efforts of the movement to pursue a prophetic vision of justice. Now, obviously, uh, the Black Lives Matter phrase has been reignited since the killing of George Floyd and really the international response to it. And like me, I'm sure you've all seen on various social media posts and online articles of the debate that sadly again seems to kind of polarize these into two camps and only two camps, two extremes. Either you support the totality of the Black Lives Matter organization and all its beliefs, its philosophy, its 13 guiding principles and its actions, or you have to respond with all lives matter or blue lives matter or some other dismissal of the movement. Crockett here makes the case, though, that there's not only these two options, but that there is a way, actually multiple ways, that people, and Christians in particular, 
uh, can support and supplement the Black Lives Matter movement and use Black Lives Matter as a phrase without having to import everything associated with the organization. So first off, I'd actually like to hear your thoughts on the use of the phrase or, or maybe the hashtag and whether or not it's just me who and my social media people and outlets for online articles that I'm seeing that's seeing this kind of polarized all or nothing and, and really, you know, what are your thoughts on the use of the phrase and the, the support of the organization? Yeah, I'll speak to, start with this, Brian Tilsrow, with, um, uh, I think there's a fair amount of ignorance around the phrase. Uh, I, I think you hear it when you talk about, well, all lives matter, or white lives matter, to see that mm -hmm. kind of coming on. Boy, that's just an indication that people don't get. Uh, what the movement is really about. Uh, and unless you uh, explore its content as well as have relationships with folks who have gone through the challenge of why Black Lives Matter is a movement, uh, you're not gonna get uh, what the whole purpose and direction is. And so um, I, I think we, we need to be much more uh, intentional about educating uh, folks outside of the Black Lives Movement understanding and saying, okay, let's let's really articulate what is going on here. Uh, and when you do, you recognize, okay, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. We need to be much more intentional uh, about embracing uh, the contents and the, the stipulations about how we might uh, improve uh, the context of how folks are experiencing life in our culture. Mm -hmm. I would um, defer to Jamar Tisby who writes about this too, the, the phrase itself has resonated uh, at a deep level. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's because it speaks to black people who have, um, who have this painful longing, the longing for others to recognize their full unqualified humanity. Um, and so, and, and he also um, says, you know what, it's kind of on us, the church, if we have a problem with the, the Black Lives Matter as an official, you know, the official organization, you know, we didn't, as a church, um, come up with something uh, better and sooner. And so, you know, that's this, this phrase that has resonated. And, um, and so rather than you know, um, just rejecting it because maybe there's some parts about the organization that that you know don't don't mesh with um, some of our beliefs. Um, we should be reflective and say, okay, what is um, what is uh, why is this phrase resonating, and how can we join in um, in the positive parts of of what's happening around Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at, at the beginning of the chapter, Crockett makes the point, um, many of us in higher education make, that words matter and that words can be quite powerful. And in particular, I mean, Lisa, you noted this, the phrase Black Lives Matter has really caught on and resonated. I, I would be interested, I mean, as, as some of you others might comment on my original question about the phrase and the movement, why, why also might you think that that phrase has caught on? Uh, I think I think part of it is, and this this phrase is interesting because we we have a little sign in our door that one of our neighbors made that says Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. uh, they asked some folks in the neighborhood, do you you know, would you like to just support the the 
really the phrase in this way. And it's been interesting because we've had a couple family members and one was like, did you guys put that in your door? And it's kind of like, well, who, who else would have put that there? <laughs> Some random uh, just posted it on our door. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think, and so part of the reason that I think it's caught on in some circles is maybe why there's also some pushback in, in others. And I think at least from my perspective, one of the reasons that it's caught on is because it exposes this gap between what we say uh, we believe, mm. uh, kind of American ideals of equality and freedom, and what has actually been the case in our history. And so it's, it's pointing to that gap and so I think if you see and recognize that gap, that phrase is going to resonate with you. Um, but if you're, if, if you don't, uh, you know, if that's not part of something that you see as, uh, you know, the reality of American history or the reality of present day uh, America, then you're going to think, you know, well, what, what's all the fuss about You know, of course they do everybody, you know, all lives matter. Mm -hmm. part of what we say and what we do and so um, I, I just I wonder if that gap is part of it and some people seeing that and, and others really saying uh, I, I don't really I don't really see that Not where the ignorance exists so that we just don't know what the, the journey has been right and just make the assumption that everybody's got the same opportunities that I do um, mm -hmm. but that's not true at all I think there's been an evolution of the term Mm -hmm. uh, prior to the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others, it was only Black Lives Matter. That was mm -hmm. the interpretation, that mm -hmm. only Black Lives Matter. But then you look at all of the events surrounding the death of these other Black people, then were people in America and across the world able to see, well, maybe Black lives don't matter because they're killing them, mm -hmm. back to back to back to back. And so I think there's been a transformation in some people's mindset about what the movement actually stands for, as opposed to what originally people originally thought it meant. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just about black people matter and nobody else. Right. But then when we look at the events in history that are taking place, we can see, oh, well, maybe we don't take certain lives more seriously than we should. So. Yeah, and Crockett, I think, does a nice job putting the Black Lives Matter movement in historical context as, you know, another one of these things that we've seen actually throughout history, public protests, movements like that. Um, and that really, you know, from it's 2014 with the killing of Trayvon Martin that, you know, ignited the, the Black Lives Matter phrase and then the organization and the movement. Rochelle, do you think it was the intention originally that the phrase would mean only Black Lives Matter? I don't think so. I think it was drawing attention to the fact that the way it's perceived, the way the events are transpiring in history, that Black lives don't matter. Yeah. And we want to call attention to that. I don't think it was um, only Black Lives Matter. I thought, it, I, I really think it was uh, intentional about, we're seeing, you know, why is this people group in history out of all of the groups that exist around the world, why are these people dying unjustly and nothing is being done about it? Yeah. I mean, I would certainly agree with that assessment. I, you know, I think the only 
either add on or interpretation of the phrase only black lives matter was actually added by people not in support of black lives matter. Right. Correct. Yeah. If you look at uh, what the founders of the movement um, have written, they um, very clear, uh, clearly say the, the movement was built on the idea that all lives matter. Mm -hmm. And, but what we're seeing is that our society doesn't seem to think that black lives matter. And so, yes. Our actions need to match up with our words. I think they, and I think part of part of the distinction between that too. I, this summer, I finally got around to reading the, the classic uh, "Divided by Faith" mm. uh, from about twenty years ago, um, "Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America." And I was struck by the way so many of the findings there were exactly again what's popping up in my social media feed. Mm -hmm. part, part of his argument there, their argument, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, it's not it's not just that there's a level of ignorance about American history. It's that specifically for white evangelicals, uh, their cultural toolkit uh, actually doesn't have the tools that they need to understand some of the structural and historical and economic inequality. And so sort of the number one way that people think about it is like, we just need to make friends or, you know, if there is a race problem in America, it's because the media is making a big deal about it. Um, or because minorities themselves are making a big deal about it, you know, that this would just go away. And, and so his, his argument is that there, it's not, that there's a kind of cultural toolkit there that you have to actually equip people with, which for me then connected with the chapter we read that you, know, you actually have to do this equipping to recognize, yeah, there is, there is an individual and an interpersonal level, uh, but there are also structural factors, legal factors, economic factors, political factors, and that for religious and kind of sociological reasons, a lot of white evangelicals do not have those tools in their toolkit to perceive these, uh, these different things well. And, and sort of the number one to go again to the, the question, what does this look like in our classes? One of the number one factors in sort of shifting that was simply becoming more and more embedded in networks mm -hmm. uh, that enabled you to actually see that, to understand that, to, to understand the lived experience of different people on an everyday basis and that kind of thing. So that, which is helpful for me, rather than me just saying, why are you so ignorant of this? Or why are you so ignorant of American history to sort of recognize how people's own, again, especially white evangelicals culture shapes them, gives them certain tools to see things and not see things. And then how do you start to shift that? I know I've probably mentioned this a few times on here, but The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, who Lisa mentioned just a little bit earlier, is a really helpful resource on, on that very topic of the history of racism, particularly associated with the Protestant church in the United States. And kind of this, I mean, I'd, I'd use the word blind spot of white evangelicals, um, particularly, I mean, throughout you know, from the 15, 1600s, I mean, from the time Europeans were coming to the, what's now called the United States until today. Um, the other resource, I don't know if I've mentioned it on here or not, but if, have any of you seen Phil Vischer's video on, he's the, the, the writer of VeggieTales and What's in the Bible. Uh, he did a video on YouTube, maybe 12 to 15 minutes on 
structural racism, systemic racism. It's really well done. And then there's a whole, you know, podcast, you know, vidcast um, background on it of, of the research that he did. He and his brother actually taught a course on it. And then he turned it into this pretty concise, really helpful um, why, how, how we develop structural racism in the United States. So I see Lisa, you're nodding your head. Yes, yes, I've watched it twice because it's so intense that it takes a few watches uh, in order to, to catch all of the things that he says. But I think, uh, I thought it was excellent. It's now been viewed, I don't know, how many, thousands and millions of times. Yeah. Yes, um, I I've, I've saw it shared by Viola Davis and, and others. Um, but it's excellent, excellent summary. Um, that I'm going to have my students watch. Yes. So speaking of teaching and learning, um, I mean, really the, the contribution of this chapter is, you know, this, this language of using a critical pedagogy to, you know, analyze, um, examine, but also like use Black Lives Matter movement as a, as a reflection on our own practices in teaching and learning and particularly for us in Christian higher education and for Crockett himself. And, you know, he, he gives kind of these three different perspectives of what, of how teaching happens, the, the positive empiricism, which is kind of the content delivery or later in the chapter, he refers to as banking models where we're depositing information into people's heads, like their empty vessels, um, which is, I would say is kind of probably the, the typical perspective of what happens in education is that students are these empty vessels and we're just pouring information into them. And the second is a hermeneutic interpretation, uh, having a lens to view things um, and, and helping us see things. I mean, this might connect to some of what we actually talk about with like worldview things. And then the third, in, in early on, he calls it conflict, a conflict perspective somewhat similar to, you know, in theological circles, we sometimes use this phrase dialectical, uh, dialectical teaching, putting two things in tension or multiple things really in tension to see what's really happening there. So as you think about your own pedagogy, uh, do you have a preferred pedagogy? Does it differ with specific courses, with different levels of students? Well, for me, Greek uh, is more of the, you know, at the beginning, especially, it's just putting things, sort of the, the deposit idea. Very different in my intercultural communication class or Islamics class uh, where um, I'm having students um, reflect on themselves, reflect on their experiences, um, share their experiences to the extent that they, you know, they want to, if, how safe they feel, um, sharing it. Um, also incorporating face-to-face -face, um, time with a variety of uh, people, different uh, people, different backgrounds, um, um, so that they have at least the touch point of, of you know, being able to, to um, hear directly from people of various mm -hmm. cultures. You know, I think it's, it's easier for some of us to incorporate these kinds of um, strategies, mm -hmm. these educational strategies, depending on what right. we're teaching. Yeah. And, and conflict, I think it might be too, too strong of a word, have too much of a negative connotation and dialectical is, I know, um, too technical or philosophical of a word. And so, you know, like on page 93, as this quote, prob problem posing pedagogies, 
is another way that he uses problem posing pedagogies start with learners current knowledge base and connect content to be learned to their daily experiences this makes learning relevant and so perhaps that kind of like problem posing pedagogy is a, a you know kind of a developmental way of approach to learning that, that i take I would take a similar one with that. I even liken it back to my own journey and my faith experience of not really understanding my own sin. Until I understood my own sin, did I really grasp what the need for a savior was and redemption. Uh, and I think in our cultures, it's, it's uh, you see the conflict or the the tension that exists. That that that's out of that birth this desire to understand as well as to grow and to say, help me connect or at least understand your situation that helps for us to be able to come with a collective direction that's going to be healthy healthy for everyone or at least for for each other uh in that process and so until we really understand the problem there's no motivation for change or movement uh, and i think that's a big part of what the black lives movement has really done is, is it's really identified there is a major systematic problem here that needs to be addressed and not just for this particular segment of the population it's 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 a much broader context uh, and i see that coming out in today's in the in the chapter as well where he addresses things more than just black lives it's it's all the the ways that we have uh, discriminated and uh, you know allowed for certain systems to continue on for a, a certain set of folks uh, and where it's been harmful for others and so i, I think that problem um, solution kind of uh, approach is one certainly that i have used because it's been part of my own experience mm -hmm. and and i mean a lot of times we actually in the classroom have to introduce the problem to the students because they may not even be aware that it is a problem I mean, they may not even be aware that the problem exists. I mean, depending on their own experiences, their own background in education, things like that. So, I mean, not necessarily just to race, but I mean, just in general. And so sometimes it's, it's part of our pedagogy has to be introducing that those problems exist. Yes, that brings to mind the, um, the concept of white privilege, <laughs> uh, which I bring up in my intercultural communications class power structures okay mm -hmm. so different cultural groups have different power structures so then um, that brings us to discuss white privilege and that is for some students a concept that they have never mm -hmm. encountered before and so yes it is about um, educating them on what that even means and then of course that will often lead to conflict for especially for white students um, in my classroom um, because they want to resist that, that uh, idea of white privilege. The students of color always in the, in the classroom, they get it immediately. Um, that definitely introduces some conflict and then some, um, you know, resolve, we have to resolve that in the classroom. Um, and, and often that is resolved because of the storytelling that mm -hmm. happens in the classroom. That's a really good example. So speaking of power and power differentiation, one of the things that Crockett does in here is let the Black Lives Matter movement kind of reflect back on our practices in higher education or in religious education um, and talks about dissolving the teacher-learner dichotomy that just as Black Lives Matter is an, an equalizing power differentiator or you know, he uses the phrase, it's correcting unequal stratification. Um, 
I know, I know uh, most of us, a lot of us do really pursue this kind of um, the teacher, the instructor is not, you know, just this authoritative figure who's kind of doing this top down. And we want to hear the stories of our students, of our learners. Uh, is it good or bad? A little of both of dissolving the teacher learner academy. Can we get rid of teachers and experts and let everyone have their own opinion and voice? And one, one question that I think circulates a lot these days or that, that I try to think about a lot is, I mean, when you say power differentiation, I guess one initial question would be, is any, is any kind of power differentiation inherently bad or wrong or unjust? Uh, and I, I think I would say, I would say no, but I think in our, at least some elements of our current discourse, uh, that almost, that, that kind of seems to be a thread in there. Um, which I which I get and I think it is really crucial that we are aware of power differentiation um, but I think it, it's kind of strange to me we, we have kind of the negative connotations of that I, I think that any kind of yeah power differentiation is, is not good um, because we see it primarily again through the lens of the fall now we might not use that kind of language out there, but it's, it's, it's fallen power, a power that's manifested as a kind of power over, uh, a power that's used to my advantage, rather than kind of the goodness of something like creational power that is this power with, power for, power that, you know, again, Philippians 2, if there is a power differentia, differential, is actually used to, to serve, um, to equip. So that, so then to get back to the question of teachers and learners, I think there's a sense in which we have to be always aware of how this kind of fallen power differential threatens to make me, you know, prideful about what I, what I know as a teacher and what you don't know. And I'm going to, I'm just going to dispense that knowledge all to you. Um, and if you ever question it, that's, then that's a huge problem versus this sense of, 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 you know, I also am a learner and I'm in this position of power as a teacher because I have submitted myself to the process of, of learning, of growing. Um, and, and I think with that mindset then, hopefully as teachers, that opens us up, keeps us open to where we need to learn from students, mm -hmm. from our colleagues, from you know, our textbook sources that are out there continually teaching us. And so there's a sense in which you know, we ourselves have submitted to that process. And that, that's what accredits us to be able to try to teach and lead others uh, along that line. I would love to jump in on that too and just add to that. This is Mark Andreas, professor of business leadership at Kuiper. But as we teach servant leadership at Kuiper, right, that, that authority being a servant is so critical. And I, I know one of the important ingredients we talk a lot about at Kuiper is the biblical idea of humility. I mean, my thought goes back to your question, Jeff, about the you know, European history. And that's where, yeah, the, the blind spot comes from the lack of humility. Can we really listen and learn from others, from other cultures? And a lot of times, whether that's you know, hundreds of years ago or in the current white evangelical church, there's not a lot of humility there uh, in general and broad strokes. So that, that's where there's a the blind spot to not understand structural racism or just the plight of other people, whether it's immigrants, refugees, uh, and people of, uh, of color, just understanding their context if we, if we don't have the humility to sit and listen and learn. That, that's the critical ingredient I think is missing in a lot of places. Yeah, and there's a phrase that he, or a term that he uses in here, humble inquiry. 
that I think is a really helpful one that, you know, that it, it pulls in the asking questions to hear other people's perspectives and stories and captures that humility aspect. It's also demonstrated again physically by how we set up our systems as well. I had an international student who described a situation where he was invited into the community uh, where the whole group was gathered in a room and there were two chairs, him for the, the pastor and for him. And when he walked into this room, he realized, okay, this is a this is a power setup for the kind of things. And he removed the chairs and sat on the floor with them to have that discussion. Uh, it strikes me about how Jesus encountered the woman uh, who was caught in adultery and how he you know, again, clearly there was a power move trying to happen here. And he again stoops down to the ground and, you know, again, mm -hmm. dissolves the system or the situation. And then is there with the woman uh, in herself in that situation. So I, I think about my own classroom. One of the things I tell about students when they come and visit. Uh, and again, I'm able to do that because most of my classes are manageable size where we can meet in the round. Uh, and so I, I teach in that environment. So I, I state to them right from, this, uh, from the start saying, uh, we recognize the reason I do that is you have things to learn from me. I have things to learn from you and you have things to learn from each other. And mm -hmm. if we can create a physical environment that helps to, to, to create or to, uh, dissolve a little bit of that power structure, even though there's still expectations, there's, you know, assignments are due at a certain time and all those kind of things are still necessary, but we can create a physical environment that helps to dissolve some of that power struggle and to, to kind of uh, relate a more uh, humble environment. And alongside that environment that Brian just spoke about is the creating the emotional atmosphere mm -hmm. that everyone's voice can be heard. Mm. You know, not just sitting in the round, but making them emotionally feel safe that they know that their voices can be heard. I find that one of the first questions I look at on my student feedback course evaluations is, did the professor create a respectful and safe environment for me to ask and answer questions? I think that's a really important piece. My, my follow-up question is, why would our pedagogical approaches in Christian higher education have anything to do with social movements like Black Lives Matter? Does what happens in like what we're doing in the classroom, creating these safe environments, setting things up, using an online management system to have this kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning or we're facilitators, does that really actually significantly shape how people are gonna to respond to social injustice and social movements. This is more anecdotal, but it's, I mean, it's interesting to me because I'm friends with hundreds of Kuiper alumni actually on Facebook. <laughs> so it's interesting to me to see the way different, different people respond. But I know, I, I think, I think part of this is, yeah, in some courses you're gonna encounter pieces of, of history that you're like, wait, I never knew like that piece of, or many pieces of history. Mm -hmm. Why didn't I know about this, this history? Um, and so it's, you know, I can see in students the fruit of uh, classes that they've taken here at Kuiper that I know these things have been talked about, whether it's in human diversity or in intercultural studies courses uh, or uh, even advanced rhetoric courses mm -hmm. or um, principles and practices of reform worldview, you know, that they've written a paper on this for this. And so it's, I, I think in that sense, uh, it, it does. And that's where it's, it's trying to figure out what, what exactly is our role 
And I think a big part of it is providing this place for people to, to process, to engage this process, to grow in terms of their, their, their knowledge in that. I don't want to overstate it, but I also don't want to understate it uh, uh, either. I mean, I think for a lot of people, their, ex their college experience does open up new, new ways of thinking, new possibilities, not because, not because we're trying to indoctrinate anybody or say, you know, you have to believe this, but just for the first time in a lot of people's experience, they're actually exposed to um, maybe a full range, a broader range of, of history and ideas and mm -hmm. understanding life and culture and society in, in a broader way. I like the quote on page 101, very brief, but I think it's very powerful. And it says, it's in the uh, top paragraph, learners lived experiences their actions and interactions in interpersonal, communal, and societal settings provide important content for public theologies. And so I think as we look at the tasks we have of teaching, looking at, at from that perspective enables us to see where our teaching can make a difference. Mm -hmm. I underline the same sentence, Michelle. I appreciated this language of emancipatory teaching and learning or freedom, teaching for freedom. It's not a metaphor or image I typically think about. Have you thought in terms of teaching as freedom, what would we be trying to free our students from if this is, you know, a feature or a goal of our, of our teaching and learning? Bell Hooks is one of my theorists um, that I've worked with over the years as far as pedagogy and education. And so I was not unfamiliar with the okay. term, but I did want to think about, well, so what am I teaching students to be free from? Mm -hmm. So if I look at what I do at Kuiper, what am I teaching them to be free from? And one thing that struck me really hard that I'm able to say um, in a way that sounds pretty much what I'm doing is free them from a monocultural way of life. Mm. Amen. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think about how, how, um, how to use that across the board because again to think about a monocultural way of looking at things so I've talked before with Lisa about how how much of my uh, biblical interpretation stuff I feel like is just how mm -hmm. to free students from their own cultural blinders so that they allow the Bible to be kind of the strange uh, you know ancient intercultural mm -hmm. text that it is um, I mean, I think you could say the same if you think about, again, maybe we don't always think about it through this lens, but, you know, if you're, if you're teaching doctrine and the history of, of theology, part of what you're doing there is trying to get people out of uh, only our time and place and culture and, and mm -hmm. to shift. And so it's, so, so it's interesting then with, with a lot, like if you think about it through that paradigm, um, I would say, especially for white students, it's, okay, I'll accept the Bible as this kind of foreign intercultural, you know, I need to learn from it, kind of submit myself to that or church history. Um, but then what would it mean to submit ourselves to listen uh, to the church, right? Not the white church, the black church in America when they're saying thing, you know, certain things to us about how their lived experience is, um, you know, there, there's a pushback there. And it, it strikes me then that it's, it's, it's maybe less because it strikes at people's, maybe it does strike at people's religious faith, but it, it, more it strikes at their faith in America or their faith in these things that they've been taught about uh, 
country. And so I wonder, yeah, coming back to the themes of humility and, and trying to broaden our perspective, how that could shape, you know, maybe I'm just saying we need to be more intentional about <laughs> this theme of emancipatory learning across the board mm -hmm. and actually show how all our courses are linked into that so that, you know, people, if they understand that, okay, I need to do this with the Bible, I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. also in human diversity, you need to do this and listen to those from outside. That's a good assessment question, a good assessment point for us. My final question then is um, from pages 112 and 113. This is actually a question that the author raises. How might public protest movements like Black Lives Matter be employed by religious educators for teaching, learning, and appropriating religious faith? Um, and this is again where he uses this language of humble inquiry. So, I mean, we've really already been addressing this kind of thing. What can we as Kuiper College is a Christian higher education institution focused on ministry, focused on theology. What, what's kind of our um, takeaway, the so what of the Black Lives Matter movement, we might be able to say some things to it, we might be able to have students be able to examine and analyze it, but what might it say to us in how we go about our courses, our pedagogy, our approach to higher education? That's a question that requires more than a, a 15 to 30 second answer, but you know, is something we set as a, here's a lens through which we are going to be asking questions as we prepare our courses for the fall, as we do our curricular assessment, um, as we select our textbooks. Well, I think one thing um, we, we take from this movement is the attention that they, we, we model that, the attention to what is happening on the ground to people. Okay, so we apply that to our students. What is happening in the lives of our students mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed on every level? Are we hearing their stories? Uh, do we know um, well, what they're going through? Do we uh, understand their, um, their social uh, environment? Um, and are we listening to that, right? We need to, um, to have our ear close to the ground. Uh, I think that's one thing we could take from, um, yeah. from the Black Lives Matter movement and incorporate that into the classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm looking on page 114 and how he talks about public protest movements have affiliated themselves with religious traditions. Mm -hmm. And how a few pages back, he talks about how um, Black Lives Matter movement speaks about God and not a religious tradition. Mm -hmm. And I think that's key, that when we look at the whole concept of having a God awareness and not so much a religious tradition, then things may tend to come out differently, you know, because we're looking at God, yeah, the author and finisher of our faith, as opposed to a denomination or mm -hmm. a religious group where there's always division. Yeah. So the whole concept of having a God awareness rather than a religious awareness was able, help me to see things from a different perspective. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction. And, and perhaps some of the reason, you know, Black Lives Matter has caught on is because it's not just connected to one denomination or one tradition or one kind of 
understanding of who God is. All right, well, thank you for participating in this conversation, this discussion. Um, I know we'll have more in our upcoming chapters as well. Um, it's always good to hear different voices and different thoughts on this book. Um, I appreciate all of you and the work that you're engaging in with this and I look forward to future conversations. Blessings. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you.